0: to come. If your clothes caught on fire, what would you do? Say it louder. If your clothes caught on fire, what would you do? Stop, stop, drop, and roll. Somebody said panic. That too, you know. So I want to ask you guys this question. How did you learn how to do that? Did your parents teach you to stop, drop, and roll? Did anybody's parents teach them that? Nobody said they oh, somebody back there, he must have been homeschooled. His parents, their mother must have taught him to teach that. So he was homeschooled too, but Good job, mom. So, um, but you know, where did you learn to do this? Anybody remember where did you learn? A few people said kindergarten. They learn how to do it in kindergarten. Get all the kindergartners down to the ground and roll. I guess that's what they do. I don't remember doing that. But um, you know, we see signs. We they're in the schools. They're everywhere. And so somehow, without really figuring it out, we all learn that this is what you do in an emergency, right? If your clothes would catch on fire, this is what you do. And we discovered over time, especially athletes, had discovered that if you do the same thing over and over and over again, subconsciously it builds into your not only your mind, but also what's called your muscle memory. Your muscle memory. We learned this a few years back uh, at a movie on a, um, when we were watching a movie. And um, um, by the way, my clicker disappeared. Oh, it's right there. Can you hand me my clicker? Forgot about that. Thank you. Um, a few years ago, we uh, learned about muscle memory from a movie when we learned about wax on and wax off, you know, and wax on and wax off and wax on. He wax the whole car. Now next day, do it again, wax on. Why am I doing this? Just wax on and wax off. That's what he heard for days. Right? What was he learning? He was learning muscle memory so that when Mr. Miyagi went to attack him, he knew to move his arms to block that blow and that there was a purpose behind all of that. We do this in a lot of things in life, don't we? where we just learn to do them reflexively. We don't have to have anybody teach us every single day how to brush our teeth, because we know how to do it. We've taught ourselves how to do it, and we do it instinctively. But the truth is, this morning, we're going to talk about something that doesn't come instinctively, something that doesn't come natural. And those things are much harder. The things that you don't do every day, the things that you don't do every week— But at times, you have to do them. And the only reason you know how to do them is because we now have YouTube videos. If we didn't have YouTube videos, you'd be stuck. But um, today, I wanted to explore with you and talk with you about what do you do when you have a friend that ends up in the ER, in an emotional crisis, in a physical crisis, a financial crisis. What do you do when a friend ends up in the ER? And it's not something that happens every day. And so it's not something we get a lot of practice at figuring out how to do this, but it's something that shows up in our lives occasionally, and I want to walk through some steps for you to know how to do this, because in my conversations with people, even in the context of a small group, when, people, when you say to people, what do you do in a crisis, most of the time people say, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, and that's what we want to talk about this morning. We're in a series, as you heard Roddy talk about, entitled ER God's Design for Us in Crisis. And this morning, we want to look at what God's design is for you when a friend goes into a crisis. And we also want to look at what God's design is for you when you see a crisis coming in the life of someone else. When someone is in crisis, and when you see a crisis coming in the life of someone else. We've been talking over the last couple of weeks that life is better in circles than in rows. I'm glad you're sitting here in rows. It would be kind of boring for me to talk to an empty room, so I'm glad you're here this morning. But we believe that your life will be enriched, you will grow, you will deepen your faith, you will deepen your walk with God, you will deepen your connection with other people when you choose to sit in circles in relationships with one another and not just sit in rows. We talked about God's design for that as these things in the New Testament called the one another's. God says you're supposed to forgive, accept, care, encourage, submit, restore, carry, and bear one another's burdens. This isn't just a job description for pastors in a church or people that are small group leaders or ministry leaders. This is everyone's responsibility. And we talked last week. I asked you this question. Is anyone, two weeks ago, is anyone outside your family spurring you on to live out your faith? to live out your faith. Last week, if you were here, um, everybody got a Lego block. Anybody still have their Lego block with them? No, no, we had a couple. Oh, there's a Lego block person over there. Brittany's still got her Lego block, you know. So, um, you know, last week I gave out Lego blocks, and I asked everybody to take a Lego block. And the Lego block represents the relationships in your life. And my question to you was, who are the people on your Lego block? Who are the people on your Lego block? You know, Jesus had a Lego block of people. He did. He had a Lego block that looks like this. He had three guys that he was closest to. Peter, James, and John. Those are the three guys you see hanging out with Jesus all the time, right? And then he had a little bit bigger Lego block called the Twelve. The Twelve Disciples. And that was the small group that Jesus hung out with. And so I asked you last week, who are the people on your Lego block? Who are the people in relationships with you? And my question to you last week is, what kind of a friend are you to them? What kind of a friend are you to them? Am I a friend who's reliable? It's a reciprocal relationship. I'm truthful. I offer wise counsel and I'm tactful. And then do I have friends like that? Are my friends like that? Are the people on my Lego blocks like this? And that's what we talked about the last couple weeks. But what do you do when someone on your Lego block hits a crisis? or you see something coming in their lives. For some of you, you know what to do. You know what to do. It's kind of instinctive to know what to do to help people in crisis, but it doesn't, it's not instinctive for everybody. A few years ago, I was in my men's group uh, called Knights here, and we were talking about a situation that would occur, and that somebody in the group had run into, and one of the guys in the group said, well, I wouldn't know how to solve that problem, and I said, how? He's like, well, I'd pull this tool out of my trunk, and this tool out of my trunk, and i pull off the side of the road, and I'd fix the car, and, and it, it's like, oh, that's interesting. another guy in the group. Well, of course, I have this tool in my trunk and this tool in my trunk and this tool in my trunk, and I pull it out and fix it on the side of the road. And the rest of the group, myself included, looked at these guys like they were from Mars because I don't have any of those tools in my trunk, and even if I did, I wouldn't know how to fix it on the side of the road. Um, and so, for some of you in this room this morning, knowing how to walk into someone's life in crisis is like breathing for you. You say, well, how is that true? Because God has gifted some of you with this amazing gift called the gift of mercy. Mercy is the capacity to come alongside someone who's hurting, someone who's in a difficult time, and be fully present and engaged with them in a way that they feel cared and loved and served. But there's a lot of you in the room that that doesn't come natural to. You're like, well, I'll just leave that to the mercy people. Well, nice try. Nice try. Because... Unfortunately, God doesn't say the mercy people are the only ones that have to weep with those that weep. He says we're all supposed to do that. And unfortunately, God doesn't say the care team at CCC are the ones who are supposed to take care of people. God says we're supposed to care for one another. Not the whole room. That's not the expectation. The people in your Lego block. The people in your Lego block. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into and ask the question, what do you do when someone in your life, when someone in your world faces a crisis and I want to walk you through a three-step plan this morning that I think will provide some direction for that and the way we're going to do that is we're going to look at three different stories in the Bible and in these three different stories we're going to see some principles that flow to the surface that are going to give us direction for that the first story is found I'm in the book of Job if you have a Bible and you want to turn to the book of Job turn to the book of Job the first thing I want you to do is I want you to be fully present be fully present and we're going to see this in the book of Job Um, The book of Job is, uh, if you have a Bible there in the rack in the chair in front of you, it's page 403. And while you're turning there, you can also follow along on your wireless device while you're turning there. uh, Let me tell you about Job. Uh, Job was an amazing guy. Job was one of the earliest guys um, in time. Uh, He was a contemporary of a guy by the name of Abraham. Listen to Job's um, situation in life. He had seven sons and three daughters, ten kids. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, large number of servants. He was the greatest among all the people of the East. Um, He was on the front of the magazine covers in the ancient Near East. That's who Job was. And so Job had all this success and all this wealth and all these great things, and yet Uh, One day Job woke up and and he got this bad news that there had been raiders that had come in and they had stolen a bunch of his livestock. And then he got some more bad news that someone had come in and attacked where some of his livestock was and killed some of his livestock. And then he heard that all of his kids were together and tragedy had happened and there was an accident and it wiped out his whole family. And literally in just the span of a few hours, Job lost nearly everything that he had. Everything that he had. And yet it says remarkably at the end of chapter 1, verse 22, it says in all this Job did not sin by blaming God for all of this. He didn't blame God for any of this. Well, his wife saw all this happening and then she watched Job then develop sores all over his body, some type of a boil that caused him just to scratch constantly 24-7. And she said, would you just curse God and die? I don't know if she was sick of him, I don't know what it was, but she just wanted to get rid of him, you know. She said, would you just curse God and die? Why are you putting yourself through this misery? And Job said in all of this, he did not sin in anything that he said. Well, three of Job's buddies showed up. Eliaphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They show up at the end of chapter 2, and they heard about what had happened to Job. And they must not have lived near us by him. So they heard about what had happened, and they said, we got to go be with Job. So they all went to Job, and when they actually saw him, they were devastated by how grief-stricken he was he looked they were just overwhelmed with how grief-stricken he was and so what did they do it says they sat on the ground with him for 7 days and 7 nights no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was they just sat in silence with him. Job was immersed in deep grief, deep sorrow, and his friends came. They didn't offer solutions. They didn't offer religious platitudes. They didn't try to fix his problems, make him feel better. They simply sat with Job. And as Job's grief settled in and became deeper and deeper, he began to wrestle in greater and greater ways. Job chapter 3, Job says this, "'Cursed is the day I was born.'" And then in verse 11, he says, "'Why didn't I perish?' And my mother gave birth to me and he said, maybe it would have been better if I never even saw the light of day. Maybe that would have been best for me. And Job at the end of chapter 3 says this, he says, my sighing has become my daily food. My grain groans pour out like water. What I feared has come and what I dreaded has happened. I have no peace, no quietness, no rest, only turmoil. And so you've got Job in this deep place of horrific loss, overwhelming anguish, and his three friends show up. And then what do his three friends do after sitting in silence for seven days? After sitting in silence for seven days, they couldn't take it any longer, and they had to fix Job. They had to fix Job. And so they tried to figure out, why, why did this happen, Job? And they spent the next 27 chapters trying to figure out, you say, why did they try to figure out what, why, what happened? Because they had an operating principle in the culture of that day. If you do good things, then good will happen to you. If you do bad things, bad will happen to you. You say, so what does that mean? Well, Job was a good guy, right? So why did bad things happen to him? There must be something bad that happened to Job. So they're like, Job, did you do this? No, I didn't do that. Job, did you do this? No, I didn't do that. Job, you must have done this. No, I didn't do that. Job, are you sure you didn't do this? Would you stop accusing me of things? I didn't do anything wrong. Then why this bad stuff? It doesn't make sense. 27 chapters they tried to figure out. What did Job do wrong? And at the end of the book of Job, Job gets confronted by God himself. God said, Job, you ever think about the fact that maybe... You don't have this all figured out. Maybe there's a bigger story going on that you just don't even know about. Because what you discover if you read chapter 1 of Job is you discover God was approached in heaven by Satan. And God approached Satan and Satan approached God and said, "Hey, there's got to be someone that you think is a really good guy and I bet you I can take him down." And God said, "The only one I know that you couldn't take down would be Job." And says, come on, give me a chance. And God says, all right, you can have him. Job didn't know any of this. His friends didn't know any of this. There was a bigger story being written and Job only knew this little slice of his story. But his friends showed up and what did Job need from his friends? Job needed friends that were fully present with him. They weren't trying to solve his problems and fix his theological confusion and make him feel better just to be present with him. And as he was with him, eventually God showed up in Job's life. And Job realized what his part in all of this was. And at the end of the book of Job, it says he repented and he came back to God. And God, as a result, blessed his life in significant ways. You know, often people will say to me when someone they know and love is in crisis, I just don't know what to say. And you know what I say to them? Don't say anything. Don't say anything, because likely if you do, it's not going to be the right thing. What do they need from you? They just need you to be silent, to be silent. And they just need you to be present, to be present. Some of you are thinking, I don't know that I could do that. You could. You could. God will zip your lip if he needs to, you know. But that's what we need when people are going through a difficult time, when they're faced with those things. And again, I'm not talking about you doing that with everybody. I'm talking about the people in your Lego blocks, the people in your life that are not related to you, that are in relationship with you when they face a difficult time. Do you have the capacity simply to be there with them and to be present with them? The second thing I want to encourage you to do is not only be fully present, but to be personally engaged. To be personally engaged. And to to illustrate this, I want us to go to the New Testament and look at a story in the Gospel of John from the life of Jesus. So you turn forward in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, page 872. uh, John chapter 11 is where we're going to be. And in John chapter 11, there's a story um, about Jesus and three of his friends. Now this must have been another Lego block Jesus had, but three of his close friends, their names were Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Um, Two sisters and a brother. And they're one of the people in the Bible that get repeatedly mentioned other than Jesus' disciples. So there was some kind of a relationship, friendship. We don't quite know exactly what the dynamic was there. We know that Jesus stayed with them regularly when he came into this area. He would have done that three times a year. Um, And so there was a relationship that was there. And so the story begins that Jesus' friend Lazarus is sick. And so Mary and Martha send a word to Jesus. They say, hey, he's sick. Can you come and help him out? And uh, Jesus says this to them. He says, the sickness will not end in death. It's for God's glory that the son may be glorified. And they're thinking, I don't really care about the son being glorified. My brother's sick and he's getting worse. Can you come and help? I've watched you heal sick people. I've watched you heal people with all kinds of illnesses and diseases. Can you come and just help my brother? And Jesus chose not to. And that's another big part of a bigger story of what God was involved in writing. And so a few days later, after Lazarus' sickness resulted in him dying, Jesus now goes to the village. And as he shows up in the village, the first person he encounters is Martha. And when Martha speaks to Jesus, she says this to Jesus. She says, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But now that you're here, God will give you anything that you want. So can you just take care of him? Can you just take care of him? Jesus says, your brother's going to rise. And Martha says, I know he's going to rise. Everybody will in the end. And Jesus says, no, I'm talking about your relationship with me because I'm the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in me will not perish even if they die. He says, this is not the end. The final chapter is not being written here. And you say, John, what does that have to do with being personally engaged? Well, let's look at what Jesus then does with Mary. Because a little bit later, he encounters Mary. And when he encounters Mary, Mary says the exact same things Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus doesn't engage her mind. Jesus listens to her heart. Because he saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along and were also weeping, and he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. You see, what I observe in Jesus in this story is when Martha came to meet with Jesus, her heart wasn't engaged yet, or at least in this part of the story, but her mind was engaged. She was trying to make sense of this. Why did this happen, and why did you do it? And I know you can do this, so are you ready to do it, Jesus? I'm waiting. I'm waiting. And Jesus engaged her mind. But Mar- Mary, when she came, she asked the same question, but went right to her heart. And she was crushed, she was devastated. She'd lost her brother, and someone that she thought was her friend didn't come through. And she was devastated. And the text doesn't say that Jesus explained to her why he hadn't come, and why he was still to come, and what he was about. It, he doesn't do any of that. He simply enters where her heart is and says he was deeply moved and troubled. When someone's going to a crisis, when someone's going through a difficult time, sometimes people can enter it with their minds, trying to sort it all out, make sense of it all. Why? I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. What do we need to do next? Who's taking care of this? And sometimes people, when they're in crisis, their hearts are broken. And that's where they are. And the example of Jesus is that when you are with someone who's going through a difficult time, you move right to where they are. You move right to where they are. And then you be honest about where you are because Jesus asked where have they lain him and they said come see and then Jesus himself wept. He was fully present and engaged with his own emotions as well. People say what do I do with someone who's going through a difficult time? You follow their lead. You follow their lead. If they need to talk about it and process it you talk with them about it. You listen to what they're saying. You engage them. If they can't even get words out and their heart is aching and their heart is broken and they're confused and sad and overwhelmed and devastated, you sit with them in that grief and in that sadness as well. One one other thing that I think we we can do in these situations that helps us to be fully engaged and that's this. Be okay with the uncertainty and the mystery of the situation. Sometimes we feel like we have to figure it out, and that 's where Martha was. she was trying to figure it out, trying to make sense out of it. but there's a part of it that we just won't be able to figure out when my coworker and friend Johnny was hit by the car and and his life was hanging in the balances, and then we didn 't know how if he would recover and how his recovery would go. I took the staff and we went and sat with one of our counselors and and just process the whole experience. And one of the things he said to us that stuck with us, he said, guys, can you be okay with the uncertainty and the mystery of this situation? Can you be okay with the uncertainty of this situation? That you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to come next. You don't know what tomorrow holds. And, And sometimes in our culture where we think and we map and we plan and we organize and we structure, God says, I just want you to be okay with not knowing not knowing, and just being present and allowing your head and your heart to fully engage. We all engage differently, don't we? We all engage differently. We all do it. Some of you naturally when you're in a situation, your mind engages right away. Some of you, no matter what the situation, when you're in it, you feel right away there's this feeling. And God's made us as wholehearted beings. He says, I don't want you just to engage your mind, and I don't want you just to live in your feelings. You need to live in both of those. And that's what He wants all of us to do. To live in both of those. And to be fully present and to be fully engaged when we're with people who are going through difficult times. When Jesus was with Martha and she wanted to debate, He engaged her mind. When Jesus was with Mary and she allowed her emotions to well up, he felt them deeply. And then when Jesus was by himself, he allowed his emotions to be seen publicly. So be fully present, be personally engaged. And this last one is a little bit different. This last one is quite a shift because this last one says, be willing to warn them of impending danger. You say, what are you talking about, John? Well, remember I said I was going to talk to you about two things. I was going to talk to you about what do you do when someone that's on your Lego block is in crisis, but I also said I want to talk to you about what to do when you see a crisis coming for someone on your Lego block and they don't see it coming. When you see a crisis coming and they don't see it coming. A couple weeks ago, we had rain the heavy rains that came in on a Tuesday evening, I believe it was. And I've talked to a few of you here who were, um, you went to bed that night, your sump pump was working fine, you heard the heavy rains, and you woke up the next morning only to find water in your basement, because either the pump failed or the water overwhelmed the pump. You were surprised by it, it caught you off guard. We were in Shillington last weekend, or last Friday, when the heavy rains came again all around us, didn't hit us but all around us. And we sat in an intersection and watched a river literally come over its banks across the road and within just a couple of minutes water going from just about this couple inches deep to almost two feet deep. And there was nothing you could do about it. And that's not what I'm talking about when you are surprised by a situation, but I'm talking about when you can see something coming. When you can see it coming. You say, what do you mean, John? What do you mean? When you see a couple in a relationship, and you know in your mind, you're like, that relationship is in trouble. When you watch a student interacting with, your parent, with their parents, and you're like, they're in a rough place. When you see someone making financial decisions, and you're like, oh no, this is not going to be good. When you watch a coworker at your job, and you're like, if they don't stop this, they're going to lose their job. You see it coming, right? You know if something doesn't change in the path that they're going down, in the the direction they're going, where it's going to end up. And we all know this, don't we? We all know this. Students, do you know when your younger siblings are making a bad decision, they're going to get in trouble with mom and dad? You know it, right? You're like, oh, they're going to get it. They're going to get it. Why do you know? Because you've been there and you've gotten it, right? You know? Young adults, when you watch students making decisions, you're like, oh, no, that's not going to turn out well, right? Why? Because you've been down that road, right? Parents with teenagers, you watch a parent with a little kid, you're like, oh, they shouldn't be doing that, you know? Why? Because you've been down that road, you've seen them go down that road, and you know where it's going to lead. You know, if you're an empty nester and you watch a parent with teenagers, you're like, oh, that one's going to come back to bite them, you know? going to come back to bite them how do we know this we know it because we've lived life right we've walked through life and we know when it's going to come and we know when someone is going to run into these kinds of situations you say john how do we know that we know it because of these things called blind spots right blind spots my blind spots are right here can you guys all see my blind spots can you see them yeah can i see them i can't see them can i can't see my blind spots no matter what i do right Right? But you can see them clear as day. Clear as day. And when you see a friend walking down a path, when you see someone on your Lego block making choices and decisions, and you know where that's going to end up. Not because you're a prophetic. Not because you looked at some type of astrology. But you just know that's where they're going to go. There's a story I want you to turn to in the book of Proverbs. And I want to read it for you. Proverbs chapter seven, where we get a picture of this, and we get a picture of the end result. Proverbs chapter seven, page five fifteen in the Bibles there. Proverbs chapter seven, and in Proverbs chapter seven we get this picture of someone who is watching someone walk down a path, and you get a sense of they know where this is going, but that person walking down that path, they have no idea. No idea. Proverbs chapter 7, beginning at verse 6, it says, At the window of my house I looked through the lattice. I, noticed, I saw among the simple, and I noticed among the young men a youth who had no sense." So someone's watching someone else on a path. They're observing them. They're watching them. They're already making some judgments about this person that they're seeing on this path. He was going down the street, walking along in the, in the direction of her house at the twilight as the day was fading to the dark of night. He's out for a stroll. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute, with crafty intent at every corner she lurks. She had intent. She had purpose. She had a plan. He's just out for a stroll. And someone's watching this. Solomon, all unfold. She took him and kissed him with a brazen face. She said, I filled my, fulfilled my vows. I have food at home. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you and I found you. And Solomon's thinking, she didn't look for him. She was looking for anybody that would take what she was offering. But he believed it. I've covered my bed with colored perfumes. Excuse me, colored linens. I've perfumed my bed. Let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is away. He's gone. He will not be home until the full moon. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with smooth talk. Solomon says, I'm, I'm watching this whole thing unfold like the movie is unfolding in front of me. And I'm seeing this guy who's just out for a stroll and this woman starts sweet-talking him. He thinks it's for him and she'd take anybody that walked down the street. And with her sales pitch, she, looked at, she hooked him. And look how Solomon describes this. All at once he followed her, like an ox going to slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. The principle here is that when you have more life experience, you will see this coming. You will see this coming coming you will see someone making poor financial decisions and know it's going to sink them into debt and it will take them years to recover and the question is will you warn them of their impending danger you see a friend in a relationship with someone who's not a christ follower not helping that person grow in their faith and you see her heart getting more and more wrapped and attached to him and you know this is not going to end up in a good place will you warn them of their impending danger You see your buddy consumed with his hobbies and his work and his wife and kids are just left in the dust and you know she's only going to put up with this so long. Will you warn him of his impending danger? You observe abusive actions and language in a relationship and know that likely behind closed doors it's not better, it's only worse. Will you warn them of impending danger? And again, I'm not talking about you doing this with everyone in this room. I'm talking about the people on your Lego block. The people in your life, the relationships that God has entrusted to you, are you willing to warn them of impending danger? You say, John, what's going to happen if I do? Well, I can tell you what's going to happen if you do. They might agree with you, they might say, You know, you're right. I've been thinking about that and, and, and God's been kind of knocking on my heart and, and I've been alerted to this in my life. Thank you for having the courage to point this out to me. And, and, and with the help of, of godly counsel and with you walking alongside of me, I'm going to make a change in my life in something I didn't realize was true of me. They might also do the second thing, which is deny it. What are you talking about? I don't know why you think that. No, dismissal of it. And the last one is, they might just hate you for it. He said, how do you know, John? Because um, I've been hated for things I've said to people. Earlier this year, I was at a funeral and um, talking to someone that I had some very difficult things to say to years ago. I said, you're on this path. And I said, this path is not going to lead you anywhere good. And I said, you've got to get off this path. And they didn't get off the path. And they lost their family. They lost their marriage. They lost everything that they had known and loved. And they came back to me and said, When you told me that, I hated you for it. But God had to keep working in my heart to get me to the place till I got to the bottom, till I got to the end, till I had nothing before I would realize what you were saying is true. You say, But John, I don't want to be the one hated. Let me give you a suggestion. If you have someone in your life, someone on your Lego block, who you see some things that are red flags in their lives, I want to encourage you to do this. Say to them, I don't know if I'm right or not, but this is something I observe. And I want to challenge you to ask two or three friends that know you really well, do you see this in me? Do you think this is true of me? Because I don't know about you, but I would hope that if the three or four people in my life that are closest to me had the courage to come to me and say, "John, I see this in your life. Do you realize it? John, I see this in your life. John, have you noticed? John, this is what I've been observing that I would be willing to say, I think I need to listen to these people in my life and do something about this." I don't know about you, but in my role, I watch people at these crossroads all the time. All the time. And I find myself wondering, and our other pastors do as well, we wonder, is anyone speaking into their life? Is anyone on their Lego block having the courage to say to them, do you realize where you are? Do you realize what's going on? Do you realize the danger that you are in? Because the path that you're on is not going to lead you where you want to go. So my question to you this morning is when you have a friend that is in the ER, or they're headed for trouble... What will you do? My hope for you is that you'll be personally and you'll be fully present. My hope for you is that you'll be personally engaged. And my hope for you is that you'll have the courage to warn them of impending danger in their lives. You know, as I was thinking about this, I realized this is really what Jesus does for us. If you're a follower of his. One of the pictures that the Bible uses to describe Jesus as the good shepherd The good shepherd. And if you think about what a shepherd does, a shepherd knows their sheep. A shepherd leads their sheep. A shepherd feeds their sheep. A shepherd protects their sheep from danger. And it's just like Jesus, if we're in a relationship with Him, He does that for us, and He uses His Spirit, not only along with other people, to prompt us and guide us and remind us and point the things in our lives that need to change. He says, well, you now do that with the people in your life. What I do for you. Will you now do that with the people in your life that I do for you. And so it doesn't matter whether you're a student, whether you're a young adult, whether you're a parent or an empty nester. My question to you is, who's on your Lego block? And what are you going to do when they face a crisis or when they are headed to a crisis and they don't even realize it's coming? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning. And as we close, I just want to give you a moment to talk to God. And if you have friends in your life, maybe some of you have friends in your life who have had the courage to speak to you when your life was headed for a crisis, um, I just want you to take a moment and thank God for them. Maybe some of you know someone who's in a crisis right now and we just ask God to give you what you need to be fully present and engaged with them. And maybe some of you have someone who you know where they're headed and it's not good. And you don't know if they're going to listen to you. Will you ask God to give you the courage to walk towards them? To lovingly speak into their lives? God, I thank you for your son Jesus. Jesus. For Him being the Good Shepherd who does all of these things that we're talking about. For sending His Spirit who is always here with us. For Jesus coming to this earth who is God with us. For picturing for us exactly what this looks like to be with us no matter what we're going through in life. And God, You invite us and You call us to be in relationship with one another in the same way. And God, you also give us life experience to know when danger's coming. And God, I pray that you would give us the courage to speak into one another's lives when that occurs, Lord. Father, as we close, um, I pray that this song would just fill our hearts with gratitude for all that you have done in offering a relationship to us. In your name we pray.